Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I want to get over to Massimo Paselli. He joins us right now. He's a senior vice president of Global Enterprise for Verizon Business. And I guess, Massimo, your focus here is on 5G. To me, it's so fascinating, not just because all the protesters um, around here are concerned that, you know, Bill Gates is using the vaccines to inject us with 5G <laughs> chips, but because it's going to make, uh, I think, business a lot more exciting and our personal lives also a little bit easier. Um, how do you think the most important uh, leaps ahead will be will be met by the 5G technology that you're that you're spreading around? Hey, good morning, Paul and Matt. First of all, uh, thank you for having me today. Um, 5G uh, uh, will change uh, the way we live as, uh, as, as normal people and, uh, and as employees. Uh, and it's probably the first generation of uh, uh, wireless services that will be more focused uh, or will bring more value to the enterprise uh, to the end consumers. Uh, uh, 5G combined with edge computing will allow us to redefine the business processes and the engagement model with the uh, consumer. Just think of the uh, smart uh, store, uh, think of a smart manufacturing, think of telehealth, think of e-education, how can you use ARBR to be more effective in the way you educate uh, uh, people. Uh, the, the, the art of the possible with 5G is infinite. And actually, what we're doing is to explore use cases uh, on 5G uh, with our partners and with our customers uh, in almost every industry. All right, Massimo, give us a sense of timing here. I, I see ads from uh, you guys from AT&T and your other competitors saying 5G is here. I don't think it's here. Where are we in the rollout? Give us a sense of the timetable. Uh, we, uh, uh, on the there are different flavors of 5G, 5G at the at the at the C band, 5G at the ultra wide band. Uh, 5G is here uh, now in 71 cities for Verizon, and we have uh, fixed wireless access in 23 cities. Uh, what do we say is by 5G is now because redefining the business processes for enterprise will take time. It will change the way they work. So that's why, even if some use cases will be uh, some use cases will be available in in you know in a few months, some will take a, a few quarters. But the time is now to work and define what technology could do and how technology could change the way corporate works. What about the safety of this? I mean, you know, I was joking a little bit at the top, but you've got. Um, Robert Kennedy, who um, the Globe and Mail called a super spreader of medical misinformation, who, who, who nonetheless is a big name and has warned about safety concerns around 5G. Is there any that we should take seriously? Uh, listen, we have a discussion about the safety every time we launch a new generation of wireless services. So we heard the same on 3G, we heard the same on 4G, and we, heard, we were hearing the same on 5G, and we will hear the same on 6G. So listen, this, uh, this security is paramount for us, uh, and, uh, and you know, wireless will just uh, 
uh, bring technology and value uh, to the human beings. So no concern about security. Massimo, when will I have to go out and buy a 5G phone? When should I do that? Well, you, you, you should do that now. Uh, <laughs> headset on iPhone of 5G are available today in the market and, uh, and uh, will bring value. Think of, uh, of telehealth, for example, the ability to capture uh, uh, your, your health data and your personal data uh, uh, in, in, a, in a millisecond and to uh, share uh, uh, this uh, with, uh, with your physician and with the expert, uh, but also think of the ability to consume uh, uh, media content. Uh, we had uh, uh, a view for the last Super Bowl where you could have a 3D view, multiple view on the same screen using 5G. So if you want to start having an experience in sports event, uh, but also have the ability to uh, um, you know, be in the forefront on the, the use of technology for your personal health, then it's the right time now to buy a 5G phone. Are you working on 6G already? You mentioned it. Is it already in the cards? Uh, mainly. So I, I think the art of the possible for 5G is infinite, but we think you will probably take several years before you fully exploit the value of 5G and what 5G could bring to people and to enterprises. So. Uh, we are in the forefront thinking to the next technology, but we're now totally focused on deploying 5G and bringing the value of 5G to everyone. Massimo, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Getting the update on all things on the telecom front with 5G in particular. Massimo Pacelli, Senior Vice President of Global Enterprise for Verizon Business 5G. The, it's funny, the telecom companies, they've spent billions of dollars on the spectrum. They will spend billions of dollars more on uh, developing um, more of the infrastructure and the technology to support that spectrum. And then uh, presumably, as they roll out services and so on, we will be incented to go out and buy new 5G phones and whatnot. So we'll see how that plays out over the next several months and years. Now I want to get into the impact of the pandemic and, well, the reopening on travel and e-commerce. Adobe does that with its Adobe Digital Economy Index. And here to talk about that is the director of Adobe Digital Insights, Taylor Schreiner. Um, Taylor, what kind of action are, are you seeing right now? Are we looking at a, a, a liftoff, so to speak, in terms of the airlines? Well, broadly speaking, Matt, we're seeing a turnaround uh, across the board, but we're not out of the woods yet. So, for instance, we are seeing that bookings are nearly double what they were before people were starting to get vaccinated. People are showing a strong interest in travel. But if you compare today's bookings to what we were seeing in March of 2019, we're still down 20%. So while people are eager to travel and they have increasing confidence in travel, uh, we're not even back to 2019 levels quite yet. Taylor, talk to us about some of the the regional uh, differences you may be seeing in your data. You know, Matt and I earlier were talking about how successful it seems that, you know, big states like Texas and Florida have been reopening uh, ahead of other parts of the region. Are you seeing regional differences? In terms of travel, we've seen a, a really strong uh, bias towards southern and midwestern states being willing to travel today. But on the other hand, if you look at the Northeast, uh, where there's been a, long, a reluctance to travel and they have sort of less travel uh, than you would expect on average for the U.S., 
the, they have a greater responsiveness to vaccines. So the more vaccines roll out, the faster folks in the Northeast are willing to travel either because they themselves are vaccinated or because they have greater faith in travel uh, with more people vaccinated. So if that's the case, um, I would expect when more people go out, when more people eat at restaurants, when more people take flights, when more people hit the shops, um, fewer people are sitting at home still using Amazon and other e-commerce sites to get their goods. Am I mistaken? Uh, It's a fair assumption, but actually we have seen 50% growth year over year this last March. So people are really still used to making their purchases online, and they're not telling us that they are showing any signs of going back to a pure in-person retail world. They're absolutely going to restaurants. We can see travel increasing, but we simultaneously see uh, continued growth in basic things like grocery shopping online. Uh, And while uh, we we expect that to continue, frankly, uh, broadly speaking, through the year. How about outside the U.S., Taylor? You know, when we go look at the U.K. and Matt's based in in Germany, are we seeing similar trends as it relates to e-commerce? Well, this is the first year that Adobe has released our insights on the whole global digital economy. This is the first report, rather. And frankly, there's some really big numbers out there. You know, last year, we saw about $3.5 trillion in online commerce, and we're seeing that grow over the first quarter at 38%. So we see incredibly strong global e-commerce growth. Uh, and in fact, we're predicting $4.2 trillion uh, in e-commerce over the course of the year, which is you know, bigger than, than some major economies you'll see in, in Europe. Yeah, way bigger. Um, but I wonder how they compare to the U.S. I mean, e-commerce in the U.S. versus, say, e-commerce in the EU. Are they similar sizes, or is the U.S. Uh, far ahead of what we see here in old Europe? Well, you know, e-commerce globally is really dominated by uh, the United States and China in terms of where the overall dollars are getting spent or the overall money is getting spent. But we, to your point, we really see uh, strong growth in Europe. For the U.K., for instance saw 66% growth in the first quarter. So just stunning, uh, frankly, levels of e-commerce growth that are continuing in Europe. And it's going to be different country by country with the varying payment systems and cultural differences. But you know, globally, we see incredibly strong growth. And the U.S. is at the moment sort of on par with the global growth. Uh, but there are a lot of countries that are going to get into this space and, and start to grow rapidly. All right. So, Taylor, you're based in the Bay Area of San Francisco, right? Lucky. That's correct. All right. Yeah. Give us a sense of how Absolutely. how that area is kind of reopening here. What's the feeling there? Again, we think about the Northeast maybe being a little bit more conservative. Texas and Florida, very aggressive in the reopening. What's it like where you are in California? Uh, well, I can just speak for my area. You know, you still see a lot of masks. You still see, a, you know, a, a dearth of public transit. But people are out. Uh, I went to my first museum uh, this last weekend and, you know, went over to see friends. So, the, the the street level commerce is definitely growing, and people are thinking of traveling, looking to travel. Um, you know, one of the things we saw in the travel stats is that people are uh, booking Thanksgiving and Christmas now. Uh, huh. That's the one area where bookings are above 2019 levels. And you know, just anecdotally in my area, that's that's what we see is that people are eager to travel and see friends, and they're they're confident that by the fall that will be possible. Interesting. I'd like to get out there. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful out there. West Coast is where it's at, man. I'm totally (laughs) jealous. All right, Taylor. Taylor.
Thanks so much for joining us. Taylor Schreiner, he's a director of uh, Adobe Digital Insights. Uh, they're out with their uh, Digital Economy Index, showing some good growth, Matt, from you know, kind of the pre-vaccine time frame uh, really in this pandemic. But still, you know, below, you know, 15 to 20 percent when you're looking at airline flights and hotels, still below, you know, 20 percent uh, well, from 2019 levels. But, it, but in e-commerce, um, they point out that the e-commerce in March of this year broke records, yeah. adding almost another Black Friday in online spending. So it's been huge. Yeah, it's been huge. And, you know, you talk to the retail folks and they don't see that going back. The market share that e-commerce has, it's here to stay. Busy week this week for earnings, also a busy week for economic data. Just today we had uh, really strong consumer sentiment numbers uh, come out, and that's good news. Tomorrow we have uh, the Fed minutes and uh, the press conference. Thursday we get a GDP report for the first quarter. Lots to dig into. Uh, we're fortunate to have Marcus Schomer, Chief Economist at Pinebridge Investments, joining us. Marcus, I love to start with that GDP print that we're going to see Thursday. What do you expect to see? It should be a phenomenal number, and then also uh, for the next quarter as well. How are you thinking about that? Oh yeah, the, the numbers look really good for uh, for the entire summer. Uh, the GDP number will be somewhere uh, north of six percent, probably. Um, we still don't know some of the some of the more variable parts, like trade and inventories, could be a little bit more negative. But uh, we know that consumer spending, for example, is on track for a nine percent quarter. I mean, that's mm. just a phenomenal number, and it's likely with the with the uh, the checks not fully distributed in the first quarter, that some of that is spilling into Q2 as well. And the numbers are probably going to stay like that through the summer. So we get consumer spending. We get personal spending and uh, um, income on Friday as well, right? Um, and a lot of people have been talking about the savings rate was so strong and there's been so much extra, at least at the top, cash to throw out into the system. Is that going to happen? Do you expect a, you know, um, a dam break in terms of spending? Um, well, we've we've seen it already, right? We had a super strong retail sales number in January, and then the only reason uh, Q1 is actually not better is because we had this really miserably cold February, which depressed everything, and people couldn't go out and spend. And then in March, they came back and, with another check in their pocket, went out on a spending spree again. And then I assume that um, the April and May retail sales numbers will look really good as well because you're right, it's not just the check itself, but it's also the money that's been accumulating over the last, literally the last 12 months as people couldn't go on vacation, couldn't couldn't go into the stores, and that has built up the savings rate. It's not really that people were saving, they just couldn't spend. That's a slightly different, uh, uh, slightly different way of thinking about it. But some of that money will seep into the economy over the next couple of months. And I think that's why GDP growth will remain strong in Q2 and probably spilling it to Q3 as well. Question is, what happens after that? Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go here. I mean, we're seeing a kind of a wide range of GDP forecasts uh, out there on the street for 2021. What's your call for the year of 2021 and then maybe also for next year as well? Um, for this year, we are, we are around 6%, and next year we see a slowdown back to something around 3.5%, so a little bit below consensus next year. I think the near-term story is, is fairly clear, and the, the stimulus push is so strong that there's probably not a lot of disagreement where we, where we are right now. But the, the disagreements are more interesting where we will be a year from now, because we're seeing more risks arising sort of on the horizon. The pandemic is not over yet in the world. 
we won't see really a, a resumption of global growth for a while. Uh, the Fed has given up on the bond market and allowing bond yields to rise, and that takes away from the stimulus. Uh, fiscal policy is now talking about tax hikes and not just spending increases all the time. And then we have some political risk coming with the midterms next year. We have uh, maybe another spending package coming soon from the Biden administration. How important is it? Do we need it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> We didn't even need the last one. I mean, we're, we're way above what, what was necessary to close the, the output gap. And we're, we're so, we're so in, in such undiscovered country right now that we have, we have no idea what the side effects of all this will be. For example, at some stage when there will be, you know, next year, well, there won't be those spending packages. There will be a, a huge decline in the, the way fiscal policy is boosting GDP growth, which could, which could actually lead to much, much lower growth than everybody's expecting, not because the economy is weak, but because the comparison from the stimulus fuel 2021 to the maybe less stimulus fuel 2022. And certainly, if the Republicans win the midterms, there will be no stimulus in 2023. That, that change from 20 to 23 could be rather abrupt and could cause a lot of macro volatility and also some confusion. Some people may fear the economy is already too weak. Recession talk may start again. All this, all this excess that we're seeing right now is creating a lot of volatility in the macro numbers, but also it will create volatility in the expectations for the future. Okay, Marcus, I'd love to just switch gears a little bit and talk about Europe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where, where Matt is based in, in Germany. A much tougher vaccine metrics there, uh, much, uh, you know, perhaps not the, um, the stimulus having the same impact it's having here in the U.S. What's your view of Europe and the economic recovery there? Well, I mean, right, the, the current situation there does not look good. And, you know, if you look at the PMI indices, they beautifully track the difference between the U.S. where services are surging now and Europe where services are stalled. UK is sort of in the middle. You could see once you start vaccinating enough of your population, you can start to reopen and services come back in the same way as they already are back here in the US. Uh, you know, the vaccinations are picking up in Europe as well. They're exploding right now. The supply is exploding. So given, give them another month, give them another six weeks, and they will be on the same track that we are on. So it's just a bit of a delay. The issue in Europe, in my mind, is more... Um, there's a there's a very different way of, of uh, policy stimulus. They don't have the checks. They don't have the big packages. And um, they have a lot of political risk coming up in the next uh, couple of months. We have elections in Germany in oh, September. Yeah. And the outcome of that is very unclear. And then something I've been worried about for years is in, in April of next year, 12 months from now, we have ele elections in France. And that could be... That could be a, a real nail biter if um, if the right wing candidate could uh, give current President Macron you know a run for his money. Marcus, where is Ois Kirschen? Ois Kirschen uh, is very close to Cologne, so um, very much in the I'm western part of Germany. I'm just stalking Marcus here on the Bloomberg, looking at uh, <laughs> where he's born. I'm sitting in Berlin, and I'm a big Germanophile, but I have to say. Right. It has hurt. The, the lack of vaccines here has hurt me. And it, I, I will be interested to see if there's any scarring from that economically and also um, to see what happens if 
the greens actually take the cake in September because they've really run up in the polls, even ahead of the CDU-CSU in our latest aggregate poll, which is totally shocking. we got to get you back on, Marcus. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for spending some time with us. Marcus Schomer is chief economist at Pine Bridge Investments. Um, and it was great to hear uh, from someone who isn't just, you know, your typical red-blooded American, someone who has a little bit more interest in what's going on here in Germany. This is Bloomberg. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Mark Gilbert, who's talking about the many reasons bankers love hedge funds. And Mark, I guess the, the main reason is or the main reasons are, you know, millions or billions of dollars in fees, right? Money. It's all about money. It's all about the greenbacks. Um, and hedge funds need the services that the investment banks can provide. They need them to lend them money t- so they can leverage their bets. They need to borrow stocks often when they go short in the market. There's a lot of specialist prime services that the investment banks provide to the hedge fund community, and they earn a lot of money for it. All right. Mark, I, uh, full disclosure, I used to work at Credit Suisse back when it was Credit Suisse first Boston, and I know uh, what a huge business their prime brokerage business is for them as it is for other leading Wall Street firms. So was. I was interested to see that Credit Suisse is trimming its prime broker's exposure here post-Archegos. To me, this just feels like a, a knee-jerk reaction, and they're going to be back uh, at some point not in the not-too-distant future. What do, you, what do you make of what's going on at Credit Suisse? Well, they've said that they're going to trim it by $35 billion, which is about a third. So that shows you they've got $100 billion out there to the hedge fund community. They're a a top five um, prime brokerage firm. Um, But you're probably right. You know, once once they get over the shock of of losing this much money to Archegos, they'll probably be back into that business because it's so lucrative. There's so much money to be made in it. You know, Mm. last year, the revenue you could make from providing these services to hedge funds and family offices was more than $30 billion. It's grown at an mm. average rate of about 8% a year since 2015. And given how hard it is to generate alpha, given how hard it is for hedge funds to generate the returns they promised to investors in the current environment, their demand for leverage is only going to increase. And so the money you can make from providing those services as an investment bank is only going to head north. Yeah, so Archegos and Greensill, right? They had a double whammy. And I'm wondering if hedge funds out there, you know, if you're a, a woman or or a dude who has a big risky trade and you need a prime brokerage services, you might not pick up the phone and call Credit Suisse, right? They might find it difficult to get that business back. Well, to be honest, half of the market is dominated by three firms, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan. Um, and if you're a hedge fund, even especially if you're a bigger hedge fund, you probably have between three and five prime brokers who you use for your business. You want to spread the risks around yourself as a hedge fund. So the risks are not just one way. Plus, you need them to be able to find the stocks to lend to you when you want to go short um, on a position. So the hedge funds themselves probably use a roster of firms to gain the, the advantage that they're seeking by doing these kinds of trades, by doing these leveraged trades in the market. So it's interesting that that 50% market share from three companies is just extraordinary. So do even the mid-sized investment banks, do they they even have prime brokerage businesses when I think about maybe an RBC, for example, a high-quality kind of mid-tier investment bank? 
there's a lot of banks involved in, in the prime brokerage business. I mean, Wells Fargo is, is in there in the, in the top 10. Citigroup's in the top 10. Bank of America's in the top 10. Um, there's, there's a lot of crumbs to be had for, from, from what is a very large table. Um, and again, just to repeat, Credit Suisse has $100 billion of exposure to, to, to this industry, um, which is, you know, that shows you how important it is to, to the investment banks as a whole. Um, and that 8% growth in revenue per year, not many businesses have had that sort of steady growth in yeah. the past five or six years. But also, nobody wants to get burned again um, like Credit Suisse did. And I'm guessing they're turning up their kind of risk aversity uh, across the board. Is that naive of me, Mark, or or are they going to get more risk averse? You've got to take on the risk to be able to do the business. The big banks should be in the business of measuring those risks adequately. Now, there's been a winnowing over the past few years anyway. More business is flowing to the bigger firms because a lot of this is down to technology. A lot of it is down to the software that you have. A lot of it is down to your, your ability to measure the risks across your own firm, the exposure that you have to the hedge fund and the family office community. And that's why the big banks have half of the market. They're just that much better at assessing these risks. They're that much better at, at keeping track of what those exposures are like. Um, and frankly, they're, they're probably that much better at squeezing the extra revenue out of the business that can finance the kind of back office technology they need to be able to service these clients safely. I mean, let's not forget, Goldman got out of this completely unscathed, completely unscathed, um, and they're top of the tree in, in the risk management business. So, yes... There are going to be increased risks in taking on these kinds of trades, but that should be the job of an investment bank to manage those risks, to make sure it's being adequately compensated, because there is no such thing as a bad risk. There's only bad compensation and bad measurement. Risk is part of the business of, of, of being an investment bank. Risk is partly what hedge funds have made their money from. Being able to assess those risks is the core of that business. And yes, this is a wake-up call, but it's not going to produce, I don't think, any pulling back from the, most of the investment banking community. They will reassess their risks. They will probably want to run the ruler more firmly over the hedge fund community and the, and the trades that they're doing. But at the end of the day, that's how you make money in this business. Mark, is there something just inherent in the structure of Credit Suisse that they just are not good risk managers? Because it seems like they are much more in the news than their peers. Uh, and I'm talking over a 10- or 20-year period. I think every bank has got skeletons in its cupboard. Uh, you know, Deutsche Bank has had several of these blow-ups. UBS revealed today it lost almost a billion dollars yeah. on, on the on the Archegos blow-up. So it, there are always going to be potholes. There are always going to be sort of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. The trick is how you react to them. And the business is how you respond to your own risk profile going forward and how you assess the risks and make sure you're adequately compensated for the trades that you've got on your book. Mark, yeah, Mark thanks so much for... Yeah, that's really interesting. This. That kind of goes to that risk-adjusted return, Matt. You know, you got to, as Mark was suggesting. 
Yeah, I, I just wanted to say thanks as well uh, to Mark Gilbert there. By the way, you can check out his piece and the work of his colleagues as well. If you have a Bloomberg in front of you, just type O-P-I-N, go. On the web, you can type Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Um, and he also has his own ticker, as we as we have mentioned. Does he? Oh, and, boy. N.I. Gilbert. N.I. Gilbert. Yeah. For all of I don't think I have there. my own ticker. Do you have, do you have your own ticker, Matt? For a brief moment, <laughs> if you typed in uh, my number, uh, my name, sorry, um, you would get all the charts. So you would get uh, G hashtag BTV go. Um, but someone intelligently removed that feature <laughs> from the terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.